have been in a series for this Advent, uh, exploring the women of Advent, the, the women who are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we come to the story of Bathsheba. Um, I'm going to read the story of Bathsheba and um, want to invite you to stand to reverence the reading of God's word. The scripture for today is taken from 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and 1 Kings 2. Um, I do want to note that before I read the passage, uh, just a, a content warning that both the scripture and the sermon, that they do contain mature themes given the topic and the language. Beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon. David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. 2 Samuel 12, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and became very ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him, urging him to rise from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And David consoled his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her and she bore him a son. He named him Solomon. 1 Kings 2, after the death of David. And David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. Then Adonijah, son of Haggath, came to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and she asked, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. Then he said, May I have a word with you? She said, Go on. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord, and now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Go on. He said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you. 
to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Bathsheba said, very well, I'll speak to the king on your behalf. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. The king rose to meet her and bowed down to her, and then he sat on his throne and had a throne brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right, and then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to your brother Adonijah as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom as well, for he's my elder brother. Ask not only for him, but also for the priest, Abiathar, and for Joab, son of Zariah. And then King Solomon swore by the Lord, so may God do to me and more also for Adonijah, has devised this scheme at the risk of his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of my father David, and who has made me a house as he promised, today Adonijah shall be put to death. So King Solomon sent Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us um, through this ancient text. This word delivered to us by your spirit, God. I pray that you speak through Andrea as she comes to open this scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. How's it going? Yeah? Yeah? Uh, my name's Andrea. I am one of the pastors here at Christ City. I don't know what to do with my communion. Um, I'm going to be a cliche grown-up and tell you that I can't believe Christmas is this week, right? I feel like this Advent season has just flown by. Um, we are in the fourth week of Advent. Um, I love that this year, uh, the fourth week is the Peace Week. Um, I feel like the last week before Christmas is usually the least peaceful one. Um, and I, I just, I love this idea that it is peace that we're asking for in Advent, which is a season of waiting. And that just resonates with me a lot this year. So in the Christian liturgical calendar, Advent is actually the start of the new year. And it's, I guess it's kind of curious that we start the year with a season of both celebration and waiting. And in Advent, we celebrate the birth of Christ and we anticipate Christ's second return and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Both of these things. We sit very intentionally in Advent in this not yet space of waiting. Uh, one of the things that uh, Watson used to say a lot, in my memory at least, back in uh, my earlier days as a part of this church community, is that looking back and looking forward are both important parts of our faith journey. You can't do one really without doing the other one. And in Advent, we look backward in order to look forward too. So we remember and celebrate the birth of Jesus, and then we're also reminded of the kingdom that he inaugurated then, and we're reminded of the same kingdom that's ever growing in anticipation of the day when it comes in its fullness. We look back and we look forward. And this is in part why we're looking in this particular Advent season at Jesus' genealogy, and specifically the women 
uh, that are named in Jesus' historical family in the book of Matthew. We are looking at where Jesus came from. Part of knowing who Jesus is is knowing where he came from. And the earliest Christians would have wanted to know this too, which is one reason why Matthew and Luke both included genealogy in their gospel accounts. I think that learning about the people and their stories, um, it would have been, and it is for us, a way of seeking a better understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus was a real person. Jesus was embodied in a context. Jesus held a history of his own in his body. And that's important. I think it's easy to expect that Jesus' lineage might be like smooth, untainted, it's royal. Um, after all, he's the son of David. He's of David's line, and David was an Israelite king. But as we have discovered together these last several weeks, the stories of Jesus' foremothers are very messy. Tamar dressed as a sex worker in order to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she could continue the family line. Rahab was a sex worker who leveraged her position to advantage both her family and the Israelite spies that she hid, becoming a part of Israel and continuing the family line. And Ruth, last week, alongside her mother-in-law, Naomi risked her life and her reputation to protect both herself and Naomi and continue the family line. It, in some ways, it really gives me hope that this lineage is not picture perfect, that it's messy, that it's founded upon real flawed people with some messed up stories. It gives me hope that this lineage is made up of some of the most marginalized people of their time, women, who were foreigners, sex workers, widows, people for whom survival was their main concern. These are Jesus's people. These are Jesus's kin. And that gives me hope that following Jesus doesn't mean that we stuff all the hard, seemingly unsightly or complicated or messy things, the things that we don't like in a box in an effort to look put together and tidy but it means instead that we embrace our own histories, we embrace our own stories, we embrace the messiness that comes with being human. We bring those things to light. And the messy things do not alone define who we are, but neither can we be defined without them. So we look back to understand who we are looking forward to. Who is Jesus? Where did Jesus come from? Who are his people? As we've seen in this series, he comes from the line of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And today we're going to talk about the fourth woman mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, which is Bathsheba. So as we uh, prepare to get into the scripture that we've already read this morning, um, I, I also want to offer a quick content warning here. Uh, like the rest of the stories in this series, Bathsheba's story in scripture uh, contains mature and difficult themes, um, specifically including sexual assault, child loss, and violence. And we'll be touching on these themes as we get into the scripture today. And I want to be sensitive, uh, particularly to um, our younger listeners and um, also specifically to those who carry um, particular experiences with any of these themes, uh, both here in person and online. Uh, both the sermon and the service are available to watch after they happen live. 
um, each week if that's preferred. So I'm going to get us started with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? God, as we um, gather this morning, we ask, Lord, that uh, we would recognize your presence with us. We ask that um, our hearts would be soft, our ears would be open to recognize uh, what it is that you might be communicating with us this morning uh, through your spirit, through uh, the Bible, through the sermon. Uh, God, I lift up our time together. I pray that you would uh, faithfully, faithfully fill in the gaps uh, between uh, the gaps in my preparation or um, what this sermon is. We ask God that uh, you would be with us as we continue, that you would be with us um, as we learn about one of our foremothers, Bathsheba. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as hard as these stories can be, um, it has felt really honoring to me to explore the scriptural narratives of these women who rarely get pulpit time. Um, you might be familiar with the story of Bathsheba, at, at, least, at least part of it. Uh, the most popular part of Bathsheba's scriptural narrative is uh, the first part where she's introduced, which is uh, the part where she's bathing on a rooftop and is seen by King David. This is typically uh, the most well-known story about Bathsheba. And as a side note, I feel like her name, Bathsheba, has not helped this, um, even though it has nothing to do with bathing. <laughs> um, but traditionally, Bathsheba and her story have carried some baggage. She's carried a particular reputation um, as an adulterer as, alongside David. Um, she's carried this reputation as like a cunning vixen who was out to seduce the king by bathing outside. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I think we've done this historically and traditionally in an effort to, as what happens in many cases, protect the reputation of King David. Uh, he's the one who's called a man after God's own heart. It's actually been difficult um, to find commentary on Bathsheba because so much of her story is centered around, um, centered on the men that are around her, especially David. And Bathsheba in many, many times becomes this like footnote in a greater narrative arc in scripture. She's like a pawn in David's character development. So David alongside Bathsheba becomes an adulterer, but then he's corrected by Nathan and he asks for forgiveness and he like writes a psalm about it. Um, and you know, that is part of the story, but it's, it's very David-centric. And I think what happens here in scripture might not actually support this position of Bathsheba as a co-adulterer, at least in intention. A David-centric view drags Bathsheba in with him. But when we shift our perspective to center Bathsheba in this narrative, it may look different. So this is uh, 2 Samuel 11, where her narrative starts. I'll just read a small portion. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his officers and all Israel remained with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman, and it was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So there's a lot in this passage that needs to be unpacked if we're centering Bathsheba, okay? So to start, David is the one that's on the roof, not Bathsheba. Um, he has a very particular uh, vantage point as the king. He can see a lot. Um, he can see places that uh, otherwise would have been private. Bathing outside in a courtyard uh, wouldn't have been, uh, would have been common. It wouldn't have been weird. In some cases, the courtyard would have been the most private place in a house to bathe. Um, on top of that, we're told in the scripture that, that Bathsheba was purifying herself after her period, which may have involved a specific kind of ritual bath. And it's also not clear whether bathing here meant like a full body bath, or it could also mean hand washing um, or some other kind of ritual washing. So that said, it is unlikely that Bathsheba's intention was to grab the attention of the king who was on the roof. Second, um, to assume Bathsheba's complicity in the relationship neglects the very clear power dynamics between David, who is the king, and Bathsheba. When David sees her from the roof, he asks someone who she is, and then they come back and they tell him She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is actually in his own military. So David would likely know that her husband Uriah was not at home. We learn this in the first verse of this chapter that I just read, that David stayed behind in Jerusalem while the troops were sent out to battle. That would have included Uriah, and David would likely have known that. And even after he knows this information that she's married, that her husband is away fighting, he still makes a choice to summon her. In verse four, he sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he lay with her. To be summoned by the king could be a life or death issue for any person. We, we don't get to read Bathsheba's internal thoughts or her feelings on the matter, but it is likely that she did not truly have a choice whether or not to go with the men David sent to get her. It's, it's clear here, and we have seen this even with the emergence of the Me Too movement, uh, the Church Too movement, uh, that compliance does not equal consent. I think that's a, an important distinction to make in general and particularly in this story. There, there's more behind this. There are some more Old Testament laws that we can't get into today, but this is not a consensual affair. This is rape. And this is not a story of a seductress and a man who can't resist her. It's more likely that this is the story of a king abusing his power for sex and then engineering a cover-up. Bathsheba is not a seductress. She's a victim. And we want to center her story here. The story gets worse. 
uh, here with the assault resulting in a pregnancy and David trying to cover his tracks first by attempting to get Bathsheba's husband Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that no one will know that it's David's child. And then when that doesn't work, he abuses his power again to get Uriah killed in battle. Again, Bathsheba likely does not have a choice whether to wed David, whether because of the power dynamic directly that we've already talked about, or because she had become at that point a widow, which severely increased her societal vulnerability, and marriage was uh, a way to secure at least some stability for her and for her unborn child. The scripture says that Bathsheba grieved over the death of Uriah, that she made lamentation for him. In her grief, she transitions to become one of David's wives, one of them, there's other ones, and delivers um, a baby. And the scripture says that the child died. And David consoles Bathsheba, who we can infer at this point is experiencing grief even more deeply. Uh, She does have another child with David named Solomon and probably several others. But this narrative, this part of her story is our first introduction to Bathsheba, and it is, for the most part, the the most well-known. Bathsheba is best remembered for what had to have been some of the worst days of her life, and that is what is recorded in Scripture. This, though, is an incomplete understanding of her legacy. She does show up again in the Bible, uh, in the book of 1 Kings, And it's here where her legacy can be solidified. So when David's on his deathbed, Bathsheba appears in the narrative again. There is this struggle for the succession. So which of David's sons of his multiple wives will take the throne after his death? So one of the sons, Adonijah, preemptively, he starts acting like he's the king before David even dies. but he does not have the backing of the priests, the prophets, or of David's warriors. And Bathsheba knows that if he becomes the king, her life and her son, Solomon's life, is in danger as rivals to the throne. So when the prophet Nathan comes to her, Bathsheba uses her influence to secure Solomon as heir to the throne on David's deathbed. So I think we can see in this part of the story that there's this power dynamic shifting for Bathsheba. Her actions are still defined very much in relation to the men that are around her, uh, with Nathan this time being the active agent in her activity. But we know that Bathsheba uses the agency she does have for the survival of herself and her son. And this is similar to the other three stories that we've heard, women who use the agency that they have in order to survive. The last we hear of Bathsheba in the scripture narrative uh, is the next chapter of 1 Kings. So it's after David has died and Solomon has taken the throne. So David's other son, Adonijah, the one rejected from succession at this point, asks Bathsheba to make a request on his behalf to Solomon, who's now the king. He wants to marry the royal woman that David last had before his death. And here, Bathsheba has agency. So she recognizes the request, the request for what it is. It's a ploy to thwart Solomon's reign. Both 
she and Adonijah would know that if he married a royal woman of David's and had a son, he could make a claim to the throne. So she agrees to ask Solomon on behalf of Adonijah, likely knowing that Solomon would see the request as a threat too and be warned that Adonijah is still a threat. So this is 1 Kings 2.19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. The king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. This is where we recognize the shift in Bathsheba, Bathsheba most significantly. Even before she makes the request to her son Solomon, the king, she is met with respect, dignity, and honor. Solomon bows to her, he sits on his throne, and then he places a second throne on his right, which is the place of honor, for Bathsheba to sit in a place of power. And it's this full circle moment in her whole narrative that we don't get when we just hear about this first encounter. It's a full circle moment. She has an encounter at the beginning of her story with an Israelite king, and now we've come full circle to another encounter with an Israelite king. But what a huge contrast between the two. Her first encounter was with King David, and that encounter is violating, and it leads to trauma and grief. Her last recorded encounter with an Israelite king is Solomon, her son, and that encounter is honoring and it's empowering. She's become the queen mother, ruling with her son and establishing that position of queen mother for generations that follow. We've been honoring each of the women in this series with a quality or um, a characteristic fitting of them and formative for us as we remember them and as we hold their stories. So Tamar the Just, who was the only one in her narrative who acted right, acted to right in injustice. Rahab the Faithful, who recognized God's movement even as an outsider to the Israelite community. Ruth the Steadfast, who held true to her intention to find a better life, not just for her, but for Naomi too. And as one of these women, I'd like to offer Bathsheba to us this morning as Bathsheba the Strong. Bathsheba the Strong. There are a lot of narrative gaps in Bathsheba's scriptural story, again, as she often serves as a formative like agent or prop for the men that are in the story. But even in those gaps, we can recognize her strength. So after she is violated, after her husband is killed, she's taken in to the palace to live out the rest of her days with the person who violated her. She loses a child. It's right for us as we center Bathsheba in her own story to recognize and consider the strength it must have taken for her to just simply survive there. That is strength. I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment as we're talking about this to acknowledge the millions of women in our world today who have been sexually assaulted and have had to endure life afterwards, uh, who have had to keep moving forward afterwards for themselves, uh, for their children, whose stories have been placed in the background afterwards, uh, whose names have been ignored. And even Bathsheba's name uh, is removed in Matthew's account. She's referred to only as the wife of Uriah. But this is not the last image we're given of her in this narrative. 
and it shouldn't be her legacy that we are left with. Bathsheba's legacy is that of queen mother who sits at the right hand of the king in a seat of power. If only all women's stories could have such an ending. But that's why it's important for us to give room to lift those stories up. Because like Bathsheba, they're not just stories of victimhood, they're stories of survival, they are stories of strength and of courage, they're stories of resilience and of fortitude, and they are stories with names, names that should not be forgotten. And we can and we should do better. And I charge us to that this morning too. We honor Bathsheba the Strong's legacy and her place in the lineage of Jesus. Bathsheba's strength stands in contrast with the abuse of power and subsequent violence of this text and many other texts in the Old Testament enacted by people as a false expression of true strength. Even when she's a footnote character, even when she's a non-agent in her own life, in any part of the narrative, even as she is the one who loses a child, who loses a husband, who is violated, whose agency is denied her multiple times, the one who's thrown around by the men with power around her, she is the one who finds the strength to survive and make a way forward. Bathsheba is the one with the strength to lament in this story. She's the one with the strength to face the reality of what is, to acknowledge loss, to acknowledge pain, to acknowledge trauma and injustice, and then to find a way forward. That is the legacy of Bathsheba the Strong. We hear time and time again in scripture, Jesus referred to as uh, the son of David. And this is meant intentionally uh, to associate him with royalty. Uh, David was the king, and it's meant to communicate Jesus' own identity as king. But Jesus is not just the son of David. Jesus is also the son of Bathsheba. Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney preached a sermon on this, and instead of trying to do it myself, I'm just going to quote her here. Remembering and proclaiming that Jesus is the son of Bathsheba from the line of Bathsheba and David, that God is faithful to the descendants of Bathsheba, creates space for us to talk about what it means that Jesus is the son of Bathsheba every bit as much as he is the son of David, and what that might mean for those of us who choose to walk in his wounded way of love. This is a truer gospel. In all four gospels, I find a Jesus remembered who looks more like the son of Bathsheba than the son of David. Jesus chose to spend his time with women who had ruined reputations like his mama and his many great grandmother, Bathsheba. At the beginning of our time together this morning, we recognized that part of knowing who Jesus is is knowing where he came from, what legacy he was born into. That's what we've been trying to discover a bit more of in this series. If his identity as the son of David communicates his kingship, his identity as the son of Bathsheba communicates something too. Jesus stands firmly as the son of Bathsheba. This is who we wait for and hope for in Advent. We hope for Jesus, son of Bathsheba the strong, who does not define strength as 
power-wielding, but operates in a new kind of strength, who, like his foremother, recognizes the brokenness of the world and acts upon a better future. We expectantly wait for Jesus, son of Bathsheba, who went from nothingness to glory, who suffered the consequences of abusive power and ended up at the right hand of the king. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. And this is whose birth we celebrate and whose return we long for. And so as we close this morning, we say together, come Lord Jesus, come son of Tamar, son of Rahab, son of Ruth, son of Bathsheba. Jesus, in the legacy of your foremothers, bring justice, bring faithfulness, bring steadfast love. Jesus, as the son of Bathsheba, brings strength. Strength for healing, strength to recognize a different way, strength for peace and for peacemaking. Jesus brings strength for transformation of ourselves and of the world. Amen.